Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And today I'm joined once again by my co-pilot and co-host on these airwaves, Lisette Trujillo. Hi, everyone. Lisette here. She, her, Aya. Happy to be with you again. This is episode 18. And I feel like we're we're really finding our groove, Lisette. We really are. It was a little rocky to start. Um, but we've definitely settled into a flow, and I can't wait for us to get to today's guest, Nia Wynn. Well, let's go. Welcome once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Catch me up, Stephen. What did this week look like for the Chikumbas? Well, the dads is in Netflix queue. Mariko and Peter Betts, one of the fathers in the dads, invited Nicole and I out on their boat in Long Island. And we had picked this weekend, but he texted me this morning to say that he had just been asked to be the chef at some highfalutin event and if we could move our boating to Sunday instead of Saturday. And in his message, he asked me if I'd seen the listings for the dads in Netflix. And I was just like, dude, I'm trying to tell you. I was just like, what are you talking about? So as soon as I sent him my response, I was like, I'll get back at you. I turned on the TV and I went straight to Netflix, went into the search. And there it is. The dads directed by Lucina. I'm doing it right now for my phone. When I tell you, I was so excited and, you know, it doesn't have any artwork. It doesn't have any release date. It just says more about this movie, save in my list or mo- movies like this or whatever. But it's there. It's there. So I was like, I Netflix, you, I got this on my phone. I was so excited. And, you know, I think Lucina said it will be available like in the fall, maybe in September. But clearly it's coming. Like it's this is real. And it's I'm like. You have no idea. You have no idea how exciting this is. It's insane. It's so yeah. amazing. I'm yeah. so excited. I mean, just the the fact that we can get this story out there and we can start talking to people about this need to have real conversations. So I made an appointment for Hobbs to see the pediatrician. Like every it's back to school time. So you got to get the appointments, whatever, whatever. I usually try to do it after they go back to school because I know there's always that summertime end of summer rush to get in to see the pediatrician. So I'm just like, whatever. So I called to make the appointment. They gave me the appointment for September. And when I called, you have to give the birth date and the name. They That's how they look you up in, at the dentist, at the doctor, whatever, whatever. So I give the birthday, I give the name. And instinctively, I say Hobbs, whatever. And they're like, I'm sorry, what's the name again? And I realized, oh, shit, I haven't been to the pediatrician since his name changed, since all that stuff went down. It was like his last pediatrician appointment was like 2021. And so I hadn't thought about the fact that I hadn't talked to this particular pediatrician in like two years. And so I was like, oh, I have to bring you all up to speed. Like, what do I have to do to get a change? X, Y, and Z. And Again, like the last time I spoke to you, I was talking about how, you know, you get those moments of like, I don't know what it is, like anxiety around having these conversations. But I had the conversation. I was like, I wasn't shying away from it, but it was just one of those moments where I was like, "Mm." and I want I want that to not be a thing as I try to evolve in this space. I want that to not be a thing. I don't know how to not necessarily make because it's like it's not like I'm thinking about it. It just happens. 
But yeah, that's for sure. It's like stressful because you're trying to like navigate what the other person's going to do and whether they're going to be a gatekeeper. All the things. To like what you need. All you know what things. I mean? All mm -hmm. the things. And again, to the pediatrician's credit, like she handled it like she just like the name not connecting was the thing that had me triggered. But the whole rest of it, you know, after I kind of stopped falling over my words was very clear on what was happening that I needed to appraise you on such that when we got there, you and whoever was going to interact with him knew how to handle him. And it's like I was saying to myself, like, once you see him, it's not like you're going to have a problem saying the right things because you're going to see who's in front of you. I just need you to know what's happening. And that's, that's really all it was. And I felt good about the conversation. They handled it appropriately. Nobody was thrown off by it. Nobody was giving me any pushback. There were no gatekeepers, but again, it's, it's one of those things that I, I grapple with and I recognize and maybe over time it will subside. You know, he's going to be 18 soon. He's going to be doing all this stuff by himself. I won't be like the interlocutory person having to help him navigate, but at least the way will have been made for him to navigate and to be effective in that. Yeah. 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 I'm going to share. I'll wait till it's my turn. Cause I okay. had a similar experience. So the, the interesting thing that I wanted to tell you before we started was a conversation I had with two colleagues, professional colleagues, about being sensitive to other people, to specifically members of the LGBTQ plus community. Because for the most part, we live in a Zoom world where people are working off camera, on Zoom, but most people aren't turning on their cameras. They're just interacting in the dark. And so this one particular coworker of mine he didn't have his camera on. He never has his camera on. So I've never known what he looked like, but he turned his camera on today and he's like this Wolverine, Hugh Jackman looking dude, muscles, American flag tatted. on the shoulder, tatted, like just crazy hair, white dude, former military. He and this other dude, former military. And they're like, when people see me, I'm a lot to take in. So I got to walk on eggshells. That's why I keep my camera off because I recognize that once people see what I look like, they're going to automatically think and interact with me a certain way based on what I look like. And he's like, he I gets mistaken for like a proud boy, a proud boy, oath keeper, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying like, we all make choices. <laughs> we all make choices. But as he was saying that he was, he and this other gentleman were both going into, and these are white gentlemen. One's white and Vietnamese. The other is just American, as he described himself. And he was, they were both talking about how you just have to be so sensitive around people. And I said, you know what? We're all men. And so we have had the benefit of not having to care what other people think and doing what we want anyway. And a lot of what we did hurt other people and we didn't care about it because we didn't know about it because nobody who was being hurt had the chance to say anything and so we just took their silence as acquiescence to this this is just your station just to just your way but we're learning that the things we said and did were hurtful to other people because they can now say hey what you did hurt me and yeah. the fact that we now have to be sensitive to other people is a good thing because now yeah. we know that the things we say are hurtful and we should endeavor not to be like that anymore. And dude's like, oh, now I feel really like we're overcorrecting. I was like, there's no such thing as overcorrecting. There's no. no such thing. Until it's being done right every single time, it hasn't been overcorrected. And the fact that you feel some kind of way, that's all right. Because you've never had to feel this way your entire life. And for the most part, you still don't. 
you're a white dude. Even though I count myself among you as a man, I still recognize there are levels of privilege that you two have that I don't. So if you have to suck it up, suck it up, buttercup. Yep. I mean, the fact that he just described himself as American with no background. Like, dead ass. So He's much. like, I did 23 and me, and now the Chinese have my DNA. <laughs> I, like, I did 23 and me too. <laughs> Why do the Chinese have his DNA? <laughs> oh my gosh. <sighs> so that happened but i mean look at you bringing like you know mature man into the space and being i have to like, i have to be better i have to i call out my privilege when i talk about why we have to be sensitive why we have to walk on eggshells walk on fucking eggshells like that's just where we are right now and and i think the overcorrection is happening from the opposite direction it's happening from the far right it's happening from all these transphobes who accuse us of having the audacity to ask for respect like are you kidding me are you kidding me right now so i will speak up loudly every single time i will check bigotry and bias at the door every single time unapologetically you're gonna hear from me you are being alan right now from the barbie movie you're like let me talk about dismantling the patriarchy that's what i'm saying that's what i'm saying okay <laughs> So, like, when we're not under attack and the members of the LGBTQ plus community are under attack, then we will stop talking about bringing down the patriarchy because it will have been dismantled. But until then, you're going to hear from me. But enough from me. What's up with you? <sighs> well, when I logged on, I told you that the Arizona Department of Education supervisor, Tom Horn, released a statement urging schools not to allow trans students to use correct bathrooms that are assigned with their gender. So I'm just waiting on like responses on texts uh, that I'm I've sorry. sent out to kind of see what's happening. Why would they do that? Oh, why did Tom Horn do that? Because yes. he's the worst. So let's talk about Tom Horn. Tom Horn banned Mexican American studies. He banned uh, pronoun use he's banned speaking spanish in classrooms like he's the worst human being in the whole entire well, he's world the of arizona oh and he did it first right like people forget oh, so like, Arizona's he, a he test wrote state. the playbook that the yeah he wrote he was like let's test this shit it lost in the courts and then he's like let's test it again so like arizona was the first state to have a bathroom ban challenge in 2013 and they tried it again a decade later because we're in 2023 they're like let's do this again and it passed but katie our governor katie hobbs vetoed it and so today he put a statement just being like parents are threatening to pull their kids out of school and i'm like you just literally like the republican party literally just destroyed public education with the over like overextending vouchers that are literally going to bankrupt our public school system and you're crying over like people saying that they're afraid to use the bathroom with trans people i can't like so i've just sort of lost my mind for a minute so i'll give you an update next episode okay and then speaking of this so daniel got his braces taken off right like last year and now we have to do the wisdom teeth because you know you don't want it to shift so we went to the same place to do the wisdom teeth because they've expanded their practice and now they do like braces and wisdom teeth. We changed Daniel's name six years ago. I turned everything into our insurance company. 
six years ago. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you that apparently they didn't communicate it to our dental side, I'm going to now have to call the dental side. We for like 45 minutes, they had us waiting and they were like, your insurance says that this person isn't covered, that it's another person. And then they quickly said the name. And I was like, so we've legally changed his name. This is our son, Daniel. I turned all the stuff into our insurance company. Get the quote. Call me back. Get the quote. Just say like, okay, she's going to call you with the corrected information. She's already turned it into the insurance company. So like when I tell you, I still haven't gotten a quote. Dude, I told you about my sphincter tightening when I had to make this pediatrician appointment. I was like, get the quote. It's the same person. I've legally changed his name. This wasn't a problem when I was with your practice before. You have accepted my money. Get it together. Get it together. And again, this is this is a you problem. This is yes. a you problem. This is a you problem. These are the issues that we parents have to go through. These are the things we have to navigate pretty consistently in making sure that our children get the care that they need because there's always um, some sort of barriers. Yeah. So now I have to call the dental side to be like, why didn't you get the information? Yeah. Daniel goes to the dentist. This is not a problem with our dentist. So it's weird that now that we're trying to get authorization on, on like wisdom teeth, it's a problem. And that, and now I find out they didn't have his name corrected. So kudos to our dentist who hasn't made it an issue and just continue to bill and take care of my kids teeth. Um, But I wish that somebody would have told me ahead of time that they hadn't corrected that problem. So like, you know, you think you do all the things right. And then, and then, (laughs) yeah. And then what else is new? Oh, I don't know. I'm just losing my mind. Like, it's just like this whole bathroom thing. Like people don't understand even him making a statement about this is going to give fuel to the few teachers who do not want to support in the more rural areas, teachers who are afraid to make waves, right? Well-meaning teachers who are afraid to make waves, who don't, who are afraid they're going to get in trouble. And when I tell you the amount of youth I speak to that tell me that even when they are allowed to use the bathroom, they'll just avoid drinking water and eating food all day so that they don't have to deal with the bathroom. Like how are kids supposed to learn if they can't nourish their bodies? It's 105 degrees out. How are they not going to drink water? Right? And this is the violent terrain that these public officials are creating for our children who will probably experience more violence in their lifetime deciding whether to go to the bathroom or not or are more vulnerable to violence than cisgender children. So, like, I'm just, I'm just mad. Listen, we have so much to talk about today. So let's get to it. Okay, let's do it. So we talked about how Target played themselves when they got all this right backlash around putting up their pride products in their stores. And so they pulled them back, pulled them off, put them in the back of the store, whatever. So they just issued a statement saying that their slump in profits, they had a 5.4% slump in profits this quarter, relative to the 30 billion that they've made since 2019. And they're saying that the reason is because of their support of pride. And so now they're going to reevaluate that support moving forward. They're going to rethink it. First of all, let's talk about this slump. 
their vintage thread line with the prairie dresses and like the dowdy ass looking clothing. That's what that's what I go to Target and I, there's nothing I want to buy. So we're clear. They also said that there was a change in consumer spending patterns. So it was support for pride and changing consumer spending patterns now that the pandemic is over so that people oh. are not purchasing as much as they had when they were cooped up now that they're not cooped up. But it was pride. It was our support for pride. So it's queer people and inflation. Daniel <laughs> tells me his favorite troll comment that he ever read about himself online was like, first my gas prices, now trans kids. Like literally, this is what Target just said. Queer people and inflation. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But this is how you assuage your shareholders. This is what you say. Oh, it wasn't us. It was those damn trans people. But Lisette, I'm sorry. There's more, but there's more. The U.S. Department of Education granted a religious exemption to Baylor University, which removes that school's obligation to take any action on sexual harassment claims involving LGBTQ plus students. Did you know what this Uh Yeah, I did. And that's some fuckery. They said the university no longer has an obligation to follow up or take action on claims of sexual harassment that emanate from LGBTQ plus people. So regardless of whether it happened, the fact that they believe fundamentally that there's only two genders, male and female created by God, it obviates the necessity for you to look into whether or not this person was sexually harassed, abused, or assaulted. Make it make I sense. Just, I was just going to ask you to break that down. So their reasoning is that they believe that there are only two genders and they believe that sex can only happen between a man and a woman. And so therefore anything beyond those categories and or descriptions falls out of their purview and therefore they have no responsibility. They can just overlook it. Absolutely. Well, that makes Baylor University. So it's, if you are a trans person or you're a gay person, someone says something condescending, discriminatory, or harassing towards you because you're a member of this marginalized community, they are not legally bound to enforce any anti-harassment, anti-discrimination, or sexual harassment claims against the tortfeasor towards you at that university. And they cannot lose funding for Title IX violation as a result of it. Well, this is a very dangerous precedent. It puts all of our kids at risk. Lisette, it is insane. And this is what the Supreme Court did when they said religious discrimination is permissible under the law. That's the precedent. And now Baylor University is requesting an exemption from the Department of Education and getting it. I have no words. It angers me. It angers me. It makes things unsafe for our children. Yes. Yes, it does. I suspect that it has to be challenged. Someone has to file a lawsuit and it has to be litigated. But this is what this is where we are. There's 500 plus bills. And now people just on their own, sua sponte, as the legal professionals like to say, just start making shit up. 
like the dude in Arizona who's telling them they don't have to use the bathrooms, like the Department of Education who's telling Baylor they don't have to follow up, take action on sexual harassment claims against LGBTQ plus people. Like, this is the world that we're living in. And I'm like, yo, not on my watch. No, it's so dangerous. I mean, this would allow for any bigot to just harass a student throughout the year. And, and as you know, as, as a mother to, to a kid who experienced harassment because of who they were in school, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Uh, that one's going to have to sink in along with the fucking bathrooms. Yeah. It's terrifying. Listeners, you have to understand, our intention is not get on these airwaves and just spew bad things at you. I would much rather talk about the positive, happy, great things that are happening in the world, because those things are still happening. But there's a lot of fuckery happening that y'all need to know about so that you can help us stop. Did you know the HRC released a study that said about half of all LGBTQ plus people, young people specifically, feel safe in at least one school setting? That they feel safe in just one classroom? Unsafe. Unsafe. In at least one school setting. I mean, think about how schools are right now the battlefield for religious liberty. Of course they are. They're at the center of a political apex that is literally looking like it's headed in the wrong direction, right? So it's heartbreaking. Not only not only that, but when you took out the subset of trans youth who answered that study. And this study was about 13,000 LGBTQ plus identifying youth last year. When you took out just the population, the subpopulation of trans youth, each of those areas goes up by like 10%. So when you're talking about feeling unsafe, it was half of LGBTQ plus youth felt unsafe, 60% of trans youth felt unsafe. If you're talking about half of LGBTQ youth considered suicide, some higher percentage of trans youth considered suicide. But a positive note, maybe I should have led with this, is that even despite this, LGBTQ plus youth and trans youth in particular offered high marks in terms of satisfaction with their lives, offered high marks in terms of having at least one supportive parent in their homes, over 60%, 62% reported having at least one supportive parent, one supportive parent of how they saw themselves in their lives. Even if they had, you know, like half of them said that at least they had at least one unsupportive parent. But with the one supportive parent, they felt like they had hope for the future. They felt positively about their lives. And I thought, I think that was very important because oftentimes we focus on the negative and there's a lot of bullshit that trans kids have to deal with in their families, but there's also positive, And I think we should celebrate those positives because they're out there. And it's a positive that LGBTQ plus youth and trans youth in particular feel hopeful for the future, notwithstanding all the fuckery that we're seeing. Yeah. I think that there's something powerful. Like I feel inspired whenever I speak to youth who are like, I am going to be fully and unapologetically myself. I'm a 43-year-old person, and it took me forever to get halfway there. Like, you know? And so it may, it makes me feel hopeful for the for our own futures, right? Like, they're going to hopefully build a better world. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is to show people, like, hey, you don't have to be 
a wallflower. You don't have to be a shrinking flower. You don't have to be apologetic in your advocacy, defense, support, and love of your child. Like every parent should be like this. Every parent absolutely. should absolutely have the right to go like ham on behalf of their kids. And so if this show helps you go ham and you get a little bit of inspiration, that's, I think that's what we're doing it for. No, it has to be for the kids. Like we as parents and allies have to be like, and maybe this will be emp empowering for parents and allies to be like, I, I have a voice. I can speak up for my kid. I don't have to have all the answers, but I can say it's wrong. That's fuckery. We can all, Absolutely. we can all bring the, talk about how it's fuckery and not have, uh, you know, all the details ex or like the verbiage, right? Like we don't all have to be lawyers to say like, that is wrong. And we right. need to be that's better. That bullshit. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good segue to our next topic, which is the fact that New Hampshire passed a law, a bipartisan law banning trans panic as a defense to murder in that state. I cannot be happier to say that the law forbids homicide defendants from claiming temporary insanity because an LGBTQ plus person made a sexual advance towards them. It's crazy that we need laws that forbid trans panic and or any of the panics with which <laughs> people die violently over. But I'm, I, we need to see this across 50, all 50 states. Right. Because right now it's only in 15 states. Governor Sununu, who is a Republican, signed the bill, HB 315, into law. And the most important thing, Republican governor, Republican lower houses, bipartisan support for this bill saying you cannot use that as a defense to homicide in our state. Like you take someone's life, you suffer the consequences. You don't get to say, oh, I was scared because I thought there was something else. Nope. That's not a defense. That's that bullshit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's get it across all 50 states. Let's do this. Dude, there's so much to talk about, but so little time because we've got to get to today's guest. So let's make it happen. Let's do this. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with our special guests today. They are so well-versed in this political moment, and I think our listeners will gain a lot from this episode. Nia Wynn is a writer, activist, playwright, organizer, storyteller, and queer artist of the Southeastern Asian diaspora. An organizer with Familia, Trans Queer Liberation Movement, TQLM, which works at local and national levels to achieve the collective liberation of trans, queer, and gender nonconforming Latinx through building community, organizing, advocacy, and education. Nia occupies the intersectional identities of woman, transgender, Vietnamese, refugee, survivor, artist, and activist. Nia was born in Vietnam, raised in Southern California, and sharpened her political teeth in Portland, Oregon. She has organized many movements such as hashtag reclaim pride, hashtag justice for Roxana, hashtag fight for 15, hashtag disarm PSU, and many others. Nia works actively to disrupt, dismantle, and disarm oppressive structures for an equitable future. Everyone, please welcome Nia Wynn to the show. Yay, welcome. Welcome to the show, Nia. I'm so happy you could join us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Nia, we previously had the executive director of TQLM on our show, Jenny Set Gutierrez. 
And it's an honor to have another member of the team here to talk through what organizing on the ground looks like. Can you talk to us about what your day-to-day work looks like? Okay, yeah, well, my day-to-day work involves organizing meetings with local-based organizations in the different states that um, I'm currently in the part of this campaign called Familia in El Sur, putting the pieces together to make this campaign work. Um, It's about building relationships in these southern states, listening to the folks on the ground as well. Talk to us in the greater detail about Familia in El Sur. Yes, definitely. Um, This initiative began at the end of February, the planning stages, but Familia has had three other initiatives in the past. First, you know, starting in the Southern California where, well, okay, let me give some backstory about Familia, right? Maybe Jenny said has already, but I can just give a little bit so that I can give some context for the folks. And I really encourage our audience to really listen to Jenny said Gutierrez's episode as well, or wherever it is in the timeline, whatever timeline we're in, right? Familia started because of obviously um, the deporter in chief of that administration deported, uh, still has the record of deporting and detaining and locking up so many people living here in this country that are undocumented. And so the badass organizers of Familia's first iteration, they shut down the Santa, uh, Santa Ana Detention Center. And that led way to what is Familia Trans Queer Liberation now. Um, it's about uplifting, supporting queer and trans Latinx, Latine folks that have been detained, have been in detention, um, have come out. So it's like all of that to add more to this context. So we started in Southern California, uh, Southern California, and then that region, and then have moved to the Pacific Northwest and then to the Northeast. And now with, you know, what would continue to be Familia en el Sur, which is the Southern states. And so at the beginning of this year, in February, right after Creating Change, which is the one of the largest LGBTQIA organizer, activist, and, you know, NGO conference in the country. So after that, we began Familia en el Sur starting in Durham, North Carolina. And we've been just hitting up all the stops of each state, building local relationships with the folks there and the organizers, leaders, community that are doing the work of really bringing our queer and trans Latinx community together and creating those that network, that, that bond that is so necessary in uh, organizing and movement work. We are at our sixth stop coming up, which is Alabama at the end of August. And then there's also, um, you know, uh, Tennessee and uh, Florida to to end that. I hope that explains uh, more context to that. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, For Stephen, Nee and I connected in one of their grassroots organizing that Familia did called No Pride in Detention. And she was here in Arizona and organized a protest that we got to walk in. And then from then we've stayed in connection. And 
when she talks about research, I mean, it's never fun research. And I think Nia and I send each other text messages here and there with like just the worst of the worst. And I sometimes wish I didn't know all the things. And I know you probably do too, Nia. Um, but it's so important to keep our communities informed. With that, I want to go into, you're the policy director for Familia Trans Queer Liberation Movement, working on building coalition in the South and places like Georgia, Arkansas. Your last stop is going to be Florida. What are the challenges you are seeing in this moment? And what strategies are you finding to be the most effective in pushing back on the dangerous rhetoric we're seeing in places like the South when we think about the ways in which lobbies like America First Legal, which was Stephen Miller, putting out misinformation through flyers, radio ads that targeted BIPOC commu- and Spanish-speaking communities. What are, th- what are the challenges you're seeing in your organizing efforts? Well, I mean, the challenges when I'm there on the ground is, is I think it's really about being real and being true and honest with my community. I think the South has really right-wing conservative, very fascist rhetoric and propaganda against people that are living there, just the local folks. And for queer and trans folks in the South that I've seen, like that resistance is there. Fighting back against those those, uh, narratives. The community there is, is robust. They are strong, although they're, you know, close knit with, and, and sometimes depending on which state, it's, it's a smaller community, right? But it's fighting back against those, those things. And I believe that it could possibly also be going on with, you know, BIPOC folks down there as well. Because like those states are so ruled by these like conservative Republican right-wing uh, people, they own the narrative. And like, even with what's going on with the, the Justins in Tennessee, right? They kicked... Uh, those representatives out and, you know, bless them for, and that struggle, that organizing effort to bring them back into the House of Representatives in Tennessee, right? But this is what we're dealing with right here. These two young Black representatives speaking up, speaking truth to power and the having to deal with that. So this is what it looks like. It's, it's, it can be scary for our community down there because you know, oftentimes when we think, uh, when, you know, when I, when I tell people, yeah, I'm organizing in the South, people are like, oh my God, are you okay? Like, I'm like, these folks in the South are living this every day. Like, of course I'm okay. Like, I yeah. have to be strong. Like, these, um, our folks in the South are like stronger than I am. Like, they have to live this reality. Like, hello, like, we need to build the network and connection and recognize that, you know, our queer and trans folks over there, like, they, they need us just as much. It, like these states aren't just because the lines divide us and like the, the voters and all of that stuff, right? Doesn't mean that they're also not part of our community. So um, I think it's just breaking those kind of um, barriers is a challenge. And yeah. You raise a really valid point about the way the communities that are in these places are surviving notwithstanding, but recognizing that it is, for for people outside looking in especially, it is dangerous. It is dangerous for the people that are living there. It is dangerous for the people that go down there. It's like when they had the freedom marches and you had the freedom drives where people from the North were going down the South thinking that, you know, we're gonna help these people. And they became the victims 
of violence and 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 all of this hateful rhetoric that you're seeing in other places they became the victims of those things and so it's i don't think it's uh it's untoward to to ask those types of questions but the reality is it's like yeah people are suffering those things because they are there they are living there 24/7 they don't get a break and and what i think is particularly poignant is the fact that you're fighting against these very well funded entrenched messaging campaigns that you have to work night and day tooth and nail to dismantle because that's for the most part all the people down there know is what they see and what they hear and when you have these right-wing organizations targeting their media channels their radio stations their television stations out of home print billboards magazines with this messaging it becomes so much more difficult to fight that so i'm really curious to know what are the strategies that are being employed to fight back against that against that entrenched mindset and mentality and these really well funded organizations that have really kind of a super head start yeah i mean like okay so um i can share some of the things that i know but you know i did, uh, i'm i'm very careful and mindful about what I say about the South, because I don't live there. And you know what I mean? I'm just, my role is a, a national organizer, right? And um, that's just, that's that has not been my home, but like from what I've seen, definitely mutual aid and um, just like healing events, um, a lot of mutual aid, because I think the, the, the social safety net and, and the support down there is is less, and it's even more uh, marginalized for folks that like uh, inhabit the identities of queer, and then black or indigenous, or you know a person of color, right? When all of these kind of like mixing of identities and and um, and how systems of oppression really um, shape their, uh, that 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 struggle for them, you know. So a lot of mutual aid and. You know, uh, folks that in the south in the south really need help. Absolutely. So one of the things that you raised is is, is that you know we're, we're seeing things in in places like Georgia, but it's not really unique to the south. We're seeing these types of anti-trans campaigns taking places in states across the country, and we know that the far right is behind all of them or virtually all of them. From your lens, who are the players making this political moment happen and what should we really know about them? So to answer that, first and foremost, I am an abolitionist um, and uh, the players, well, definitely they're both sides uh, or of the same coin, which is the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are the players that are like setting, you know, all of this up. I say, you know, I want to say the Nash, the the Republicans who are backed by like multi-million billionaires that are funding a lot of these like um, think tanks and um, legislative um, nonprofits that are writing a lot of these uh, these um, legislations being pushed into the houses. A lot of these um, legislations that are being pushed into the the houses, and also funding a lot of these like crypto fascist groups um, like the Proud Boys, uh, like the Patriot Prayers and, you know, all of them, like they're uh, the, what is it, Moms for Liberty, right? They're being, they're being uh, funded by people like Eric Prince, uh, who, uh, you know, was part of Blackwater, now 
uh, called Academy and his sister is Betsy DeVos. And so they're all part of the Council for National Policy. They're funding a lot of the, the kind of like the apparatus that is creating a lot of the rhetoric around trans people are demons. Trans people, you know, LGBT people are groomers and pedophiles and all of this stuff, right? They have the political, socio-economical like support to be able to put together this fabric of reality, right? That people in the uh, South, but all, all over the country, right? Are seeing, this is why we're seeing a lot of uh, these like, parents coming into the schools to really like lay out, you know, the, this because they are being funded by that network. Um, but I do think the Democratic Party is, you know, should be held accountable too. I, I think that the system works hand in hand with each other in that way, right? Like if the Democratic Party didn't like stop or if they ever really did support the working class people of this country. And that includes undocumented people, that includes um, you know, all of the identities that are working class, uh, then we wouldn't be dealing with these like these internal fights like this. Um, there is this journalist that has been, um, he wrote this book called The Undertow that is on my list to read, but he's talking about this kind of like subterranean kind of bubbling of a civil war happening, you know? So um, yeah, it's just, I, I'm sorry that I answered that too long-winded and just all over the place, but. But uh, it, is, it is like a huge map. I mean, you and I talk about this often. It's like this big map of organizations that are working in tandem uh -huh. um, to um, put forth their agenda, right? Which is white supremacist. It's uh, dogmatic in its viewpoint. Um, and it's all about control and marginalization of those who are not white Christians, right? And so I think what I find so poignant about our conversations and why I really, why I wanted you on our, on our podcast is because you live at these like varying intersections. You've had such a, you have, you have so much lived experience and you have um, such a deep understanding of the moment. And, and also I think you, you're hopeful, right? I also think that um, what I'm seeing, not just through Familia's work and your work, but so many people in the last two years have talked about um, coalition building. Like there's more of us than like the 38% of white Christians who are pushing this. They're just wealthier, right? Um, and so what have you, what have you found that, or what have you learned in your trip through the South, um, what are you learning in from other organizers there that are like in this moment who've lost access to care? I know you talked about mutual aid, but like, what are you learning? Um, and also are like, and not just in the South, but like, what do you see in terms of like effective ways of us combating this political moment because they're big machines. And I feel like when I talk about this, because I feel like 
you were just explaining it and it, I feel like that meme, I keep saying I feel, but you know, that meme with the guy who like has all like the, like uh, the wall of like nonsense behind them. And they're like, and conspiracy. I feel like every time I'm trying to explain to people <laughs> what's happening and like the moving parts and the players and the ways in which they try to make it look like like your neighborhood moms are pissed off and showing up to the school board meeting when really they're well-funded uh, and message trained to come and disrupt. Like, oh, I don't even know how I got to this question, but like, what have you learned? What are you learning? And what are you like, what do you see is like most impactful? Is coalition building working? Are we connecting the dots for folks who, for allies, right? Like for parents who may be listening, um, what do you hope trans youth learn from all the work you are doing now as well? Like, what do you want them to know? I know it's a big question. It was a big thing, but. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, I can go over some of the stuff that I've learned in each state and try to tie it together with maybe like a broader thing, but, <clears throat> or maybe not all the states because, you know, it's, uh, but. So, well, definitely in Mississippi, right? Um, there's a water crisis over there. That was the first thing that I learned, like coming there, right? That um, you, you can't, you can't bathe in the water you can i mean you you can but very briefly right like um you can't drink from the water um right so that's that's a clear infrastructural problem right um and then uh their local uh, specifically in jackson their local uh government is I heard that there's like some kind of tribunal or something like that, that they have to like look to other white like politicians that are like making the decisions. It's like problematic in that way over there, right? And then like in um, Texas, right? Governor is like trash already, like doesn't believe uh, probably a QAnon or right uh, in that way. Um, but he doesn't, he has, such a, uh, a a grasp, like a, a power, a hungry grasp on the people in Texas, doesn't like doesn't want to look at the the issues there. Like in San Antonio, when I was there, um, I learned that it was it's one of all the cities in Texas that is like implementing a harm reduction, and there's a crisis over there, right? Uh, um, there's so many unhoused folks, but there's that's everywhere, right? And then now we uh, just juxtaposing that with all of the kind of the exodus of people leaving California, leaving the West Coast to go to Texas, thinking that like opportunities are better there, but like that's also creating that more housing insecurity and more home uh, houselessness uh, for a lot of people potentially, right? And then the governor, uh, Abbott, who is making it more of a police state with each, each time that he's in office. I learned that he has created this uh, policy, this uh, law in the state where the police budget can only go up. It can never uh, go down. 
So when the city uh, or the state votes on the police budget, it only exponentially goes up. And all of the infrastructural damage and issues with Texas itself, right? Come on, think back yeah. to like pre-COVID, uh, during the lockdown, when people were freezing in their homes because of that uh, climate crisis, you know, like Absolutely. we often think of climate crisis as something that is like, it's so hot, right? But like, it's also the the, juxt- the opposite of that too. It gets freezing cold too because of the extremity, right? So the, they have infra- uh, infrastructural uh, issues over there, but instead they're focusing on police. And then just cutting to most recently when we were in Atlanta, Georgia, with the uh, cop city that has been in, uh, in building and then um, activists such as, um, you know, rest in power and rest in peace, Tortuguita, uh, who uh, was gunned down by Atlanta police um, because of their organizing efforts to protect the forest, um, you know, as part of the Stop Cop City um, campaign over there. So this is what I'm seeing in each state, right? That there's an infrastructural destruction happening because of climate disaster, because of um, kind of the state and private industries coming in to really destroy the land and the uh, the communities there, right? Um, that's what I'm seeing. And this is the, uh, the conversations that I'm hearing from queer and trans people, right? That, um, yeah, I mean, of course, the, the, the conversations are like, we, we don't just talk about pronouns and we don't just talk about those like things that like are being uplifted in communities, but, like it, on like the, the mainstream, right? But that's not like, we're not canceling people for that. Like we're talking about real issues that we're seeing as like organize, like local organizers. Like, I mean, of course we're also kikiing and enjoying ourselves too, because we're, our lives are not always about like, Yes. Sadness, but like, but those are the things that I'm learning from my community uh, that are boots in the ground over there. Um, And I hope that, you know, um, given this platform and short space of time that I've been able to kind of bring that back in a way that is uh, palpable and and digestible for folks that are listening, right? But um, to, you know, to tie all those things together, this is a, a state problem. They're not, uh, our, our country, these leaders, these politicians, whether Democrat or Republican are not caring, not even thinking about the people or how to like how to improve our lives. They're more focused on destroying this, the land here and making it kind of uh, difficult for us to survive and live. Well, and, and, and what, what a way to mask it through anti-trans legislation, right? To pull people away from the real issue of, you know, climate, uh, water crisis, um, infrastructure issues, houselessness, economic issues, right? Like that, that is, that is their reasoning, right? If you have people who believe that Jesus will save them regardless of, and that they don't need to worry about what happens in this in this land, in this planet, then they can keep destroying it, right? Um, 
and people are not connecting that and not understanding the deeper reasoning why, which is, you know, white supremacy and capitalism. Thank you for centering all of that for us. So I had a, a, another question, but I, I'm going to ask you this one instead. You kind of outlined a, a myriad of things that you've seen on the ground in different states, uh, housing insecurity, food insecurity, unpotable water, water that people can bathe in, crumbling infrastructure, all things that are legislated our, our, I'm sorry, our elected officials should be focused on. And yet, state after state is focusing on demonizing, vilifying trans people, LGBTQ plus people. What do you think they hope to gain? Like, what's the end state, end game for all of this? What do you think the end game for all of this is? I mean, Profit. I think at the end of the day, it's it's about their interests. Um, yeah, that should be it. Just profit. Yeah, <laughs> always. Yeah. Like it. I mean, I mean, um, it's built into this how this system has worked. I think. Profit. Well, and it's the shit that pisses me off. Look. I'm going to, I'm going to rant. I'm going to get on a, on my soapbox really quick, but but what I, what I, my experience, my experience has been is that immigrant communities come to this country and, and we look for people like us for support and help. And often you find that support and help in churches. Right. And so in these like little tiny Christian churches and they're getting the support, this has been my experience here in Arizona. Um, and then like, you know, they're like, oh, sell Amway, sell, um, uh, you know, sell, uh, what was the thing that Jose almost sold for Melaleuca, right? Like these, like, and they're owned by the Betsy DeVosses. Like people forget that Betsy DeVos and Eric Prince actually are, uh, Amway, Right. And so they come in and they and they sell you this idea of like the American dream, like come here. And I'm I'm just using my experience because I'm from an immigrant background. Right. Like I had a lot of families that joined their small church, local small churches. And then they're like, Jesus, right, is going to save us all. And 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 so I think well-meaning people get sucked into this idea of like, I'm going to come. And all we're doing is making the Eric Prince's and the Betsy DeVos's of the world more more wealthy to then implement policy and ideologies that are like harmful to the people they claim that they're trying to help that's my tiny rant because i've had family members like follow this money wheel and good friends right like travel this path of like you know i want a better life and here's why i found people who offer me that and the reality is is that all they're doing is is dividing our communities and indoctrinating members of our communities in the same way that they did our ancestors through colonial colonialization, right? And so it's just frustrating. I get frustrated that I get frustrated by this, and I wish that there was a way. And I think in having these conversations, maybe we're doing so in in a small way, of educating people on like why why they need to be more involved politically and why they need to like understand this moment better. I think what it really is, 
I'm sorry, Lisette, but I think it goes to what Familia uh, and El Sor is really trying to do with that yeah. community building and that coalition building. Um, and, and you know, Nia, I, I wonder if you could kind of go into, into that a little bit, like talk to us about how that is helping to reverse the tide or at least to provide some comfort to some of these impacted communities. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, definitely a lot of the things that I hear, I just get really emotional um, thinking about like some of the ways that community has shared with me and and uh, others on my team that like um, they are, when they come to our um, Familia Nosor events, you know, they say like, I wish we had more of this, I, you know, like, because uh, sometimes, you know, for for some folks there, like they, it's an island for them, right? Where they don't have that that space to connect and and build with other queer trans Latina Latinx folks, um, because it's mostly queer white people or trans white people or not that, you know. I do think we do need solidarity and and all of the. Uh, across multiple lines, but I think there's something so deeply um, important for our community to be in space with someone who is um, like-minded and, and um, understand on a deeper level um, those those little nuances of experience, right? So like that is beautiful to me um, to see that and hear that and I, and. Um, that's one thing, right? Um, the other is like with the building of these relationships, I think it really combats those like those dominant narratives that you know this uh, current situation in this country is, right? It's recognizing we're not those things that they say when we're like you know when we're together, like we're not those things that we that they say, and there are family members that come and support and they, that also adds into it too. It's kind of like a, um, it spreads, you know, to really combat these dangerous narratives and uh, rhetoric against uh, LGBTQIA people. And, you know, we create events that are about having a good time, but also about political education, teaching folks about, um, this system in a, in a way that is more like, you know, you know, Luz who designed this amazing background, like she um, and some other folks, other organizers and myself, we created a, kind of like this game called Hotaria Loteria and we play there and, you know, um, teaching about like Roxana Hernandez and um, teaching about Vogue, which is like, come on now with what's going on with O'Shea, you know, with the murder of O'Shea um, last week and all of these things all tie together like into what's going on with the fabric of this empire really, but yeah, with this country right now. So it's all of those things trying to like offer, um, offer a narrative that fits more with our community. What's your hope for the future? Definitely abolition of the state. It's done. Empires crumble. And this is what's happening right now. We're seeing it happening in real time right now. And, and what is that saying? It's like Rome didn't fall in one day or whatever. Yeah. And 
you know, hubris, like hungry power and, and greed and all of those things really participate in all of that. And like to jump back to what you were saying about like with what's going on with, you know, Betsy DeVos and, and the Eric Prince that I can't believe I'm like humanizing them, but like, I think on their end, they don't really think that they're like bad, evil people, right? In fact, I think that they really do the thing, think that they're good people doing the Lord's work of demonizing and dehumanizing people like us, right? Because I, aren't they like, don't they believe in like the prosperity narrative? Yeah, right? they're dominionists. Yeah. yeah, they, yeah so they, <laughs> like they think that God is on their side because they're so prosperous, right? But yeah. not like they, and they don't over, they don't think about all of the destruction and colonization and that whole history behind them that has led them to this point for their prosperity, the whole family's prosperity, right? Like being billionaires. Right. And, uh, um, so to, to put it plainly, like, um, I think a lot of people just don't, it's not, it's not like a binary way. Like there these people are evil and these people are good in that way. Right. I think it's just like, everybody's doing the things that they think that this, that will benefit their interests in the system. And it, in the long run, it's just people like us that are, have the short end of the, the the stick for this situation. So I think we just need to build community together and really um, work to kind of like get this new system into into gear. So when you said that thing about, you know, the whole prosperity, you know, yeah. doctrine and the people who believe that, it reminds me of a quote from Jesus. And I tell you again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Like that's the thing right there. The way they manipulate the religious doctrine to fit their own narrative rather than do the thing that the person that they hold up to be the penultimate example of how to live your life, the person who lived like a pauper, who lived among the disenfranchised, the outcast, the, you know, the unmarried, the savages of our society. That's who he walked with. If you believe. And he wasn't white. I just want to say. Stop, stop that. There was no blonde, blue eyed Jesus. Stop that. Okay. (laughs) And we're not even going to go into the colors and things because it's not important. The fact of the matter is this person that they uphold to be the penultimate example of how to conduct yourself as a member of this human species was the most humble, giving, sacrificing, supplicant you would ever encounter. And yet, and still, that example does nothing for the myriad of people who are talking about their demons, their devils, their aliens, their all these things. And for people to cast aside fellow members of your community because they don't comport with some standard that comes from who knows where. And justifies the behavior that these people have engaged in. It's just, it's criminal, really. Well, I mean, like, white supremacy is about all of that, right? It's always about, like, um, taking the narrative and shifting it in a way that really benefits their interests. They did that. I mean, they did that with, uh, what is it? Uh, Eugenics. The eugenics. They completely, and also with slavery, too. They've used the book. I'm not Christian. I wasn't raised uh, with that uh, doctrine of belief, but like, 
I recently learned that like Southern Baptists and Baptists, like the difference is that Southern Baptists utilize the good book to justify slavery. That's, that's the distinction. Uh, Robert Jones is the guy who wrote the, the book White, uh, White No More, which I recommend folks read if you, if you like to do that and, and research. But I learned, you know, that's what I learned about like the, the split, right, between Baptists and Southern Baptists. And so I, all, all of that to say is, of course, like at the end of the day, you can use anything in, uh, in any text, actually. Yes. That is on my my reading list, The History of White People. <laughs> the History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter. Wonderful book. If you really want to disabuse yourself of this concept of white supremacy and understand the origins of this concept of white and black and colorism as it yeah. is currently being practiced, because people have this, this concept that whiteness is right and there have always been white people and white people have been the rule. no. It is manufactured, made up to support this system called slavery. Chattel slavery is built on this made up concept of white and black and people don't know and they should know. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I want to say something too, like, just because I've had the honor of being in community spaces with Nia and other people that I know, there are people who I've. I won't like name them all here, but there are people where I've seen them do mutual aid work that is so deeply moving, organizing work, hearing Nia speak to youth at the GEMS retreat we were at, empowering them. Like they are from a spiritual practice, right? Like they are the conduit of like love and change and progress, right? Like they are that, that movement forward. And I am always deeply inspired when I'm in those spaces. And I often tell myself when I'm there, like that, that is the work, right? That love for one another in space. I just wanted to shine light on that because I see that. Like I, I'm, I get to glimpse that and I wish other people could too. And also too, I hope one day, as Nia says, you know, you know, when we talk about abolition, that that mutual aid would then disappear because then we would be showing up for one another in, in a way that is, is true and giving and not based on inequity, right. But based in like communal giving and like being in community together. And so I just, you know, before we take too much of your time, Nia, I just want to say that I see that like I I was raised Catholic, but I'm no longer I, I no Me longer either. hold any of those beliefs. Yep. But I see from a spiritual space, I see the gifts that that community members, organizers bring to our world. And I see Daniel light up around so many people because he he knows like youth know what's authentic and what's not. And when you see them just light up and feel like their full whole selves, it's, it's, it's a miracle. So let me ask a question. Let me ask a question because you actually raised something, Lisette, that I think is something our, our listeners could use. You have a lived experience from an intersectional lens and you're doing the work. You're on the ground. You've been on the ground. You've been engaged in community. What advice do you have for parents who are raising BIPOC transgender kids? 
in this day and age, what would you say to them about just the path forward? That's a great question. Um, thank you, Stephen. Um, well, you know, thank you both for, you know, just allowing me the space and time. I think as parents, like you love and support the basic things that a, a parent should give to any of their kids, but like, especially to their queer and trans kids, because as both of you know, um, the system is coming after a lot of the uh, queer and trans youth, right? But like love and support, grace, and you are the elder that is like kind of guiding your kids to live in this system and this world. You know, I look to my parents who came to this country and I don't want to like um, push a this like refugee narrative that like we came here looking for a better life kind of thing because it's complex. Um, but my parents, you know, they did the best that they could. Um, but at the end of the day, they have always supported me as a transgender kid, youth, uh, teenager, um, even though they didn't know the word transgender or I did, but they did know, you know, um, when I was a, a, a child that like, like I was like, mom, I'm a, I'm a girl. And my dad would, you know, buy me dolls, take it home for me. Um, you know, like they, they affirmed me um, and did not restrict any boundaries uh, on me to uh, behave any specific way. It wasn't until I came into the American school system um, that these strict gender roles were put on me. Um, not just by the teachers, but like by my peers, right? Because it was like kind of soft power in the way where they're like, oh, you're a boy and you're playing with dolls? Weird. Like, and then it got more um, extreme when pu uh, puberty hit, right? Because that's when like the distinction of kind of like sex started to change my body and the bodies of uh, my uh, peers around me, but yeah, I would, I would say definitely support and like parents don't necessarily have to like understand the complexity of gender and sex, but like at least kind of be on the path to learn and grow with your, your transgender child, um, and youth, right? Like we are unpacking the system and all of its fucked up nature together. Like we don't have to know like the everything about this system, but at least like let's learn and grow and move together and and really work to um, to kind of like mitigate and 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 support them in the best ability that we have. Thank you so much. With that, where can people support your efforts? Where can our listeners go to support Familia and the work you are doing? Uh, well, definitely follow us at um, at Familia TQLM. That's F A M I L I A T Q L M. The TQLM is Trans Queer Liberation Movement. That's um, we are on uh, all social medias, um, and just like follow our work. We have um, big things coming up. We've got a national encuentro happening so definitely uh, need support with that in so many ways um and we're finishing up our um familia and el sur uh tour very soon 
um, before the end of this year. And um, there are a lot of big things going on. So, um, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, I always enjoy playing with you. Oh my God, that was such an amazing interview. But now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA plus community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this. Today's ally of the week is Beyonce, the queen, be for life. Beyonce is on her Renaissance tour, and during her performance, while she was suspended midair, she saw a fan's pro-trans sign and said, trans is beautiful, which has resonated with so many members of the trans community who saw her unprompted statement as so important for creating safe spaces for trans people. You better work, Beyonce. I also want to say that her tour, every venue she's been in, she's made all the restrooms gender neutral. So she is doing the ally work needed, and I'm living for it. Beyonce has long been a champion for marginalized and less visible members of our community, and her public support, her very public support, uplifts the entire trans community. We just love her. I know, we do. And this is why Beyonce is our ally of the week and forever queen bee. Okay, congratulations to Beyonce. Now on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is actually a group prize. And it goes to the North Carolina House and Senate Republicans. North Carolina's Republican-led House of Representatives and Senate overrode Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's veto of three bills targeting transgender youth. House Bill 808, House Bill 574 and Senate Bill 49, which ban doctors from providing gender-affirming health care, prevent trans girls from playing on women and girls sports from middle school through college, and prevent instruction on gender or sexual identity, as well as forced outing of students to their parents. These were all enshrined in law by virtue of these Republican vetoes. I think that it's important that we call out one particular asshole in that group who made this all possible. Representative Trisha Cotham. Representative Cotham was elected as a Democrat on a platform that included her support for LGBTQIA rights, but switched sides, ensuring a veto-proof majority in the House. Not only did she switch parties, she also voted in favor of all three anti-LGBTQ bills. What an asshole. Literally lied to her constituency for votes and then voted to harm them. And that's why North Carolina's House and Senate Republicans and Representative Cotham are our assholes of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Nia Wynn, for joining us today. And of course, I want to thank my OG, Lisette Trujillo, for always engaging conversations. Steven, thank you so much for just dealing with my crazy brain today as I lose my mind over potential bathroom infringements and all the other things in the state of Arizona. I couldn't do this without you, without you being patient with me. And so I'm so appreciative. We also couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Folks, you know the drill. Please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things you need to to stay up to date with everything going on here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye. Bye.
If you are thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.